Welcome to the Foxy Podcast, a bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout and Foxy Digitalis. The show is produced at the KMSU studios in Mankato. Here in the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. We started things off with a brand new track from Giant Claw called Empire of Summer from the forthcoming Mutant Glamour LP due out on Orange Milk Records within the next month or so. We're going to be talking with Keith Rankin on this week's show, who, together with Seth Graham, run Orange Milk Records, a label that within the past few years has been building an impressive catalog with high-quality artwork and with stunning releases by the likes of Sean McCann, Ashley Paul, Sundrips, and Rankin and Graham's own solo and collaborative work. Our conversation with Keith will touch on his role in running the Orange Milk label, his work as Giant Claw, and his thoughts on underground music culture at large. Also, Keith has generously provided us with several tracks from new and upcoming Orange Milk-related releases, which we'll be playing throughout the show. We'll start things off here where we get some background on Orange Milk. First, could I have you recount some of the background details of Orange Milk? When had you and Seth started the label? What was sort of the driving force behind getting the label going? Yeah, sure. Um, So we started in uh, 2010. I think we both uh, were we were both hearing a lot of kind of cool, uh, more underground bands uh, re- releasing these albums on you know small labels, and uh, people were listening to it, which was a surprise. <laughs> so we felt that yeah, we we wanted to be a part of that, even if we maybe didn't vocalize it at the time. So also there was. Uh, the idea of you know having all the all the releases unified under a, a kind of a, a single art uh, artistic vision maybe mm-hmm. uh, that was that particularly interested me I guess because I guess you know sometimes labels are seem maybe a little bit pointless now <laughs> mm-hmm. with especially for smaller artists when they can just self release and you know, make make a decent uh, amount of money that way. So the idea of maybe having like a, a unified uh, covers or a certain art style uh, that was that was appealing. Well, I know that you handle much of the artwork for the label, which you're kind of talking about. But uh, how, how would how would you characterize some of the other roles and responsibilities that Seth and you? take on given the distance between you you know if seth is, is uh, based out of brooklyn and you're in columbus ohio yeah it'd be a lot easier if we lived <laughs> closer together but uh, we we do talk pretty much every day and we're both we have a pretty even temperament uh we're not too stubborn so uh, decisions are pretty easy to make but right now i yeah like you said i do most of the art and uh, i'll ship uh, most of the records out which is, I guess I have the funner part of it. <laughs> um, he kind of, he like set up our LLC and um, does like paperwork. <laughs> so, but I think we're going to switch, like we plan to switch off uh, every, maybe every couple months. Mm-hmm. So one person will get to like store all the records and kind of, take over the fun part yeah. than to, the other person. Yeah. To keep yourself fresh in some sense. Yeah. 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 
Well, in reading this interview that you had done for Foxy Digitalis a few months back, uh, you had mentioned that as a label, you were initially interested in doing LP reissues of smaller run tape editions, and you kind of referenced that uh, early on there, uh, that you felt deserved a wider audience. Um, you did this with Open Resolve for you know Sean McCain's records. So is this something yeah. that you still that you and Seth have an interest in doing? Uh, well, we we quickly realized that it's, it's quite an undertaking doing a LP release. I mean, neither of us is particularly wealthy, uh, so <laughs> you know, um, if we have one really really bad release, it can kind of sink us a little bit. Um, so every everyone's a, a chance is basically what I'm getting at, and I think at this point. Uh, it interests me a little bit more just to try to bring something new to the world uh, if we're going to take that risk, I guess. But, you know, there's still there's still a, a long history of pretty amazing tape releases. I know one of the first ones that we were interested in was a Cavalady's Crowded Out Memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and we asked them, but they just said, well, we'll just do a new one for you, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think... That might be the attitude of some other uh, bands too. So, just I think, continuously um, moving forward in in some yeah, sense. Yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's where we're at now. I was just trying to find new stuff. Yeah. Well, in that same Foxy Digitalis interview that I had mentioned uh, previously, you had referred to being a bit reluctant, at least in regards to your own music, of falling qu- or into quote falling into the tape seen cliche of releasing a million albums a year um, yeah <laughs> how, how do your feelings about this element of sort of overabundance in the tape scene play into orange milk's release schedule and and perhaps just the catalog that you guys are trying to build as a whole well i think uh, i don't think it affects uh, orange milk uh, release schedule too much because you know there's just there's so much out there anyway it's um I don't feel too guilty about, you know, adding more junk to the world because <laughs> <laughs> there's so much anyway. Um, but I do feel uh, for, for my Giant Claw stuff, I think maybe a fatigue sets in with listeners when there's, you know, release after release. Um, it can be a bit confusing maybe. And I, I also think there's a perception that, you know, if you're putting out 10, 15 releases a year, you're not really spending too much time or putting too much effort in each one, um, which which is not the case, you know. But having said that, there are plenty of releases that seem pretty tossed off that I still really like, so I don't want to make that judgment overall, but uh, but for me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put out anything unless I was... Uh, really happy and comfortable with it, you know? Right, right. And uh, I, I tend to work pretty fast anyway. The thing I... There's, there is a side to the whole uh, rapid release schedule that I do like. It seems to kind of take down uh, the notion of, like, an event album, which is a... Uh, I think that's something that labels have perpetuated for uh, quite a long time. Where, you know, like a band will just 
they'll put out a record and then wait a few years and like this hype will slowly build until it reaches a mm-hmm. peak. Right, right. And then like, you know, then the new Bruce Springsteen album comes out and it's just, you know, still just like a bunch of guys in a room playing like some shitty songs or whatever. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like it's always going to be somewhat of an anti-climax when you have all this hype around like and some making it some sort of event. So I like that, uh, I like that these tape labels are kind of uh, getting rid of that or maybe taming down that notion yeah, I mean, it, advertising ploy or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I like I, I always thought that too. It's like, I mean, for some of those bigger bands, I mean, uh, really, does it take three years? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, if something takes that long, you have to sort of question, you know, what on earth are they doing in the studio? No, it's it's completely absurd. Like, <laughs> I mean, every me and everyone I know, like, we have jobs. You know, we like I, we do music on the side. Even I do. Like, I don't make a living from the label. Uh, and art, you know, art is what I love to do, but it's not, I don't necessarily make my money from it. Right. And if I can, if I can make like five or six albums a year, I don't see why Radiohead can, you know, pump <laughs> out one a year. Yeah. I mean, or, I, I don't think Tom York is working down at the local, you know, grocery <laughs> store yeah. in between tours <laughs> or anything like that. Yeah. They're so. getting paid to sit in a studio and, write a little song yeah <laughs> well, i wish that yeah great. <laughs> well i'm gonna i'm gonna play a few tracks here from some releases that came out last year and from your most recent batch of tapes starting with something off of this intercourses tape by man-made hill um as of a few months ago and i and i think it was you maybe it was seth you openly called this uh your favorite album of 2012 and yeah. i'm wondering you know that's a few months ago are you sticking <laughs> with that and I and I guess what what is it about the song that you like so much? Yeah, well, that, that, yes, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, still still up there. I think uh, I think the DJ Rashad album. I don't know if you've heard that. No, I haven't. Um, I think that album that might be that might have taken the number one spot. <laughs> but um, but yeah, the Man Made Hill is um. We we actually played me and Seth played with him in uh, in Toronto, and uh, like he did this kind of he was with another guy and he did a kind of weird really crazy uh, synth noise set kind of thing. Uh, it was pretty interesting, but then he gave us this record, and it was completely different. It was very well, first of all, very like catchy. Mm-hmm. Which which was kind of the last thing I was expecting, and also it has a feeling of um, like being sampled, like he's almost sampling old disco or something like that. Yeah, definitely. But, but it's not like it's it's him playing all that, um, which I I think is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm gonna go ahead and play something here. This is Glass Trap from the cassette Intercourses by Man-Made Hill.
mentioned previously that perhaps one of the potential downsides of cassette culture is just this overabundance of material being released. Um, but for you, what are some of the positive aspects that you've taken from participating in this culture or just through your interaction with other artists or artist-run labels operating on this level? I guess being part of the whole culture has kind of uh, changed how I see music in general or how I listen to music. I can still, I can remember, I guess, listening when I was a little kid to like a, to a Tool song, I think, on the radio or something. Um, I can't remember which, but I just remember hearing this Tool song, and, the, and then in hindsight, I, I can see that I just had no concept 
of it being made by human beings. <laughs> it was like... <laughs> and it may very well not have been, you know, <laughs> with that band. <laughs> yeah, it, well, it felt like it just beamed down from somewhere, and it's just the concept of humans kind of making this in a methodical way was just it was so foreign to me. And even as I grew up, uh, that that notion kind of persisted, even though obviously I realized that people make music. Um, they're still like listening to, I guess, classical music and stuff like that. There's still a, a disconnect uh, between the, the musical element and kind of like the human part of it. So I think, I think being now uh, part of the music culture uh, has, has humanized music in general for me a whole lot which I'm, I'm pretty grateful for. I mean, I guess there is some benefit to listening to music without kind of dealing with the personalities behind it. Uh, some might argue that it's, it's more of a pure way, but I don't know. Now, now I, you know, the music I listen to, I, I feel like I know a majority of the people involved in it, or at least have a personality or a face behind it. So that, that adds a whole kind of new layer of appreciation that I really enjoy. And also it's, it's made me realize that there's no kind of a mythology behind uh, the, the power of music or whatever mm -hmm. has, uh, has kind of died down a little bit because I've, I've realized that, you know, music is just like any other uh, community or any other kind of social construct. It's just, it's just a group of people interacting and sharing ideas and uh you know it's, it's it's not too different from how you act interact with your parents or your friends so yeah i, I feel like uh being part of the culture has given me a more kind of grounded view of it all mm -hmm. and i i think other people uh share that that view too who sure. are in similar situations as i am yeah, I'm pretty grateful for that. Well, you you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but with outlets like Bandcamp and other options for artists to release their own work, you know, what importance do you feel labels continue to serve? Or maybe what must they strive to achieve in this age of digital and decentralized musical distribution? Yeah, I, I think that is a or will at least will become a, a pretty big question for labels. Um, I, I think it could go, you know, it could go a few ways if uh, kind of the digital revolution keeps on keeps on going the way it has been. I, I think major labels are going to start, you know, really kind of toning down, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is probably for the best, in my opinion. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, smaller labels like ours um, kind of keep spreading out at least for a few more years or another 10 or 20 years, maybe. I don't know. But yeah, like I said before, um, having some kind of unified uh, a theme of some sort is, uh, is the role that I want to keep playing as far as having a label. Um, Having a kind of that unity is a, I guess it builds trust in a way. Like if if, if people start uh, hearing your your releases 
and after a while I start liking a lot of them, you know, you can keep going and and people will will trust what you're putting out there. It's kind of similar to how websites work, or I guess how even like MTV worked in the 80s and 90s. It was like people trusted that source as a as a place to find new music. Because, um, you know, frankly, it's, it's kind of a pain in the ass uh, searching uh, through all the junk out there to really find what's good, mm-hmm. or what you like, what, what you respond to. Uh, so I think I think labels can serve that role, uh, as well as you know blogs and websites and all that stuff. I, I was going to ask. Do you, I mean, as a listener for yourself, I mean, has have you found in the last maybe three to five years that you've become more focused on labels and and how they're sort of building a certain catalog and 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 rely on that in some sense that you just repeatedly check out certain labels no matter what yeah yeah totally um i think i feel like a lot of people in kind of our uh, our circle of musical people have uh the trust has kind of shifted to the label i mean there's obviously some some artists that you can count on, but um, I, I sort of feel like uh, you know you've you've risen to a certain level of nerddom when you start uh, <laughs> you know identifying everything with a label, and I I'm I'm as guilty as anyone with this. <laughs> that's how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I mean that's I think that's the the function that the labels are going to start serving more and more. Because, like I said, there's just so much. Um, almost everyone I'm friends with is, is a musician in some capacity, I think. And, and just making music is so easy now. It's almost, you know, you used to have to, like, learn a guitar or piano or whatever, which was a pretty labor-intensive process. Now you just have to learn, like, an editing program or a recording program. And, uh, you know, you spend, like, three hours and you can, like, make a whole album just, like, using samples or whatever mm-hmm. or using a sequencer or anything like that. So I think that rise in technology is, uh, it's a it's a pretty big deal. I think it's going to slowly start maybe, like, a whole new era of music in general, uh, just putting the power in the, in, you know, in anyone's hands. Where they can just make an album in like a few hours. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys are set to release your next batch of tapes here in the coming month, I believe you had mentioned to me. Um, yeah. Could, why I'm going to play something from each of the three cassettes that you have coming out. I'm just wondering if you could tell us about some of the artists and releases in this next batch that you have. Yeah, sure. Um, so the, the three artists are Team Jordan, HCMJ, and Pajama. Um, and actually, two of those, two of those, the Team Jordan and HCMJ, um, I connected with uh, living in Dayton, which is Dayton, Ohio, which is where I grew up. And uh, and they were both in slightly separate scenes in Dayton. Um, and then they moved on, moved uh, to other cities, and I kind of have been interested in what they've been doing since. And the Team Jordan is, is more of a dancey, uh, 
it's, it sounds sampled. I, I'm actually not even sure if, it, if they are sampling, if they're playing, uh, which I, I really like. That's, mm-hmm. You know, one of my favorite parts about it is kind of a, not really knowing what exactly is going on or what methods they use to, to get what they, to get the results they got. Yeah, but beyond that, like the Man Made Hill record, it's, it's just it's a really catchy kind of dance album. So that one's, yeah, that's a good one. And uh, HCMJ is uh, it's pretty diverse. It kind of, it has some um, kind of like metal drone aspects to it, um, which, which I, I thought was pretty interesting. He's got like some shredding uh, metal guitar and then, there's a later section that has like really pretty acoustic guitar and some vocals thrown in. Um, yeah, I, I think this but, this excerpt that you gave is kind of it touches on some of that metal playing. I think. Yeah, it does. I, I yeah. think it has a little some little shredding in there. Yeah, yeah. It's like a mini little opera almost. Like it goes through kind of a lot of ups and downs, mm-hmm. which is very cool. And then the the last is the pajama, which is. It's uh, this prog band from Norway, actually. Um, and the guy from that named Eric, uh, he actually runs a chiptune label. Mm, okay. Which, um, that's how I connected with him. He put out online one of my previous records. And we've always shared an interest in kind of like almost cheesy 80s Yellow Magic Orchestra <laughs> okay. type stuff. Okay. So he's definitely channeling that uh, big time pajama so that's pretty great yeah all the way from norway which is very cool awesome yeah well we're gonna start off something this uh, with uh something from team jordan here this is a track called stadium ignition off of the forthcoming champion cassette
when did you start officially recording under the name Giant Claw? Well, I think that was also around maybe early 2010. Um, actually, I think my first my first release was uh, what I mentioned earlier on that chiptune label. <laughs> I made like a really kind of distorted progressive rock album. And yeah, they put it on there, which was kind of very bizarre, and people kind of hated it. <laughs> and I didn't understand what, what, what it was doing on that label. But aside from that, uh, really the change happened when uh, I decided that I was too bound by kind of composition. Before then, I was really into kind of making uh, little weird little songs, I guess, or trying to copy classical music or something on the piano. I feel like after a while that come that kind of just becomes very constricting. So I wanted to I wanted to get into more improvising. Uh, so I went into my friend's studio with a few friends, and we just improvised like hours and hours of stuff. And uh, I, I kind of after the fact, I went back and overdubbed over top of it, and kind of tried to shape it into something listenable, and. I feel like that approach was very different for me, so I think around then is when I adopted the giant claw name. I, you know, like when I've listened to your music, the stuff that you released in the past year or so, I mean, there's this, there is this sort of playfulness to it, or this just this sense of exuberance just kind of going off in another direction, um, which I can't say I hear in a lot of the synth-based or electronic music floating around right now. So I'm I'm kind of curious. Did you come to playing this type of music through maybe more dance leaning techno musical interests at first, or did you come at it from a more experimental angle? I think I was more interested, and in, like I said, I guess prog rock was like kind of one of my first big <laughs> obsessions when mm-hmm. I was a teenager, um, and I. Bringing from that, I got into like uh, jazz fusion, which I know a lot of people kind of very uh, <laughs> is kind of reviled now. Yeah, uh, <laughs> a lot of cheesy stuff, but uh, and then you know from that, like getting into you know early '60s bebop and stuff. So that that was kind of my background, and also I guess uh, early electronic music. Like uh, Raymond Scott, I don't know if you've heard him. Oh, I I, I love Raymond Scott. Huge, yeah, huge he fan. was a he kind of blew my mind. That was kind of my first that was my first uh, real realization like what a synthesizer was. Even though I don't think he used synthesizers that we know today, yeah. <laughs> he used towering electronic devices. Right? <laughs> yeah, but you know, yeah, the uh, the tone and kind of the the general gist of his music. Uh, it feels very, very synthy and very like stuff we hear today, even. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like I remember hearing one of his pieces that was from like the late '50s, just being totally, completely blown away um, that someone was doing that kind of thing. And also, I guess let's see, I guess Edgar Varese. Uh, I remember hearing his, I think it's Ionization. Which is it's not electronic, but it's just it's kind of an intricate uh, drum piece with with all these different elements to it. I think there's like a siren in it and stuff. Um, 
and it feels almost improvised, but uh, if you, there's YouTube videos of them performing it, and when you watch them, it's clearly just very uh, constructed and planned out, and he, you know he wrote it all out. Um, so that I found that pretty interesting, um, and also also almost optimistic as well as a lot of that early electronic music. There is a kind of exuberance to that. I feel like almost an optimism for what what the future of this music could be, or uh, I don't know something about the newness of it. Maybe mm-hmm. it just it felt so full of uh, excitement. So yeah, I, I connected to that a lot, and I think I still feel that kind of excitement. Just being able to record. Period. Like uh, like I mentioned earlier, the fact that you know I can sit down with some with a keyboard and like plug in and record a song in like an hour or something. It's, it still is uh, really exciting. And um, I still get a thrill out of just being able to make it, layer things and, you know, the whole process. It's, it's, it's great. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there is this, in, I'm going to talk about your new record now that you have coming out. There's mm-hmm. definitely this noticeable advancement in your sound in terms of layering it. Um, I hear lots of you know differences in terms of arrangement and just the overall complexity of the sounds. And the new record's called Mutant Glamour. Uh, I'm curious, you know, if there was sort of a thematic element at play on this album, or maybe what was sort of the general direction you were interested in heading when you were recording this one? Yeah, well, uh, for all my for all the giant claw stuff, I like to. I like to have some, like I guess, a name in place. Uh, it usually becomes the album title, but just something, uh, I guess, a starting point, if you will. You know, Cause I, I feel like the first step is the most difficult to kind of get over uh, when you when you start a record, like a structured record. Uh, so I like to have that, that kind of jump-off point. And yeah, and I do like to conceptualize the whole record as one thing you know i mean i was talking about just the thrill of recording um (laughs) i do that a lot but a lot of that stuff doesn't see release um uh, so when i when i set up to make a record i like to kind of shape it from the beginning and have one thing in mind so yeah I, i came up with the name mutant glamour first i guess and i i was thinking about uh, on one level, I guess the concept of uh, mutation in you know in genetics and also in culture and music, like a mutation will enter once in a generation or whenever, and it kind of upsets the status quo. But then over time, it becomes the status quo, and I just that idea I found really interesting that you know we seem so steady. Uh, and what we value in music, it seems like such a concrete thing in our minds sometimes, but uh, over time, you know, even in like two or three years, uh, what we value aesthetically can just be completely flipped around, uh, which is kind of amazing and absurd and mm-hmm. baffling to me. Right, um, right. Well, so, I, I, would, I would maybe interject and say that you know, think of how new age music, for example, has, right. has become 
popular in a sense over the last couple of years within the underground. Uh-huh. That would be a prime example. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like now we have to just like go back to the nineties and be like, Hey, this stuff is going to be cool again in 10 years. <laughs> like shut the fuck. <laughs> like what are you talking <laughs> But yeah, it's, 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 it's an extremely rapid cycle. I think it's getting faster and faster now. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, th- I think part of that also is that a lot of uh, companies, corporations, are hiring younger people to kind of to do their branding, to make their image a bit. And these younger guys or girls are, you know, they're into like Neutral Milk Hotel and Nick Drake and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So they kind of, they've, I feel like that culture has injected uh, their music into um, the corporate culture a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's such a small space between the subculture and the, the above-ground culture. And <laughs> the two are kind of just in this weird dance together now, where it's like, I hear a lot of artists kind of sampling, you know, like late 80s, early 90s, um, like instructional video music, things like you know what I mean, mm-hmm. and it's like they're they're sampling this from essentially what was this corporate culture. Even a lot, even a lot of library music was for you know instructional videos and right. corporate demos and crap like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we're kind of taking that back, and I don't know. I the interplay there is definitely interesting to me. Yeah. Well, um, so you've been also been working on, on music for a Moroccan children's cartoon, uh, which we'll play a few tracks from in this upcoming set. But I was just wondering, too, kind of in connection with your new record, did working on the music for this type of, you know, context or audience spill into the new Giant Claw album in any way? And I guess also in terms of your musical process, how has working on a project such as this, you know, affected the way you've worked? As an uh, as a musician, yeah. Well, it's been pretty amazing <laughs> getting to work on this thing. I don't think I don't think it affected the new uh, LP so much. Um, I was kind of in a different. I was able to separate the two headspaces uh, pretty effectively on that because I think I had started the show maybe uh, shortly after I had started the record. I can't really remember. Um, either way, yeah, the, the the TV show, which is a, it's a children's show, it's a cartoon, you know, so kind of my my goal there is basically to be as cute as possible. Like, that was my prerogative, mm-hmm. essentially. That was my assignment, I guess. So doing that, I, I guess, made me realize that some of this inner cuteness was maybe repressed a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, from being in being inside the the kind of underground music culture for a while, uh, because I think you know I think there's certain ideas about uh, what kind of music is serious and what is not, mm-hmm. um, and which which I think is kind of absurd. Um, but you know, if I think there's a tendency, I guess, to simplify things. There's a tendency for 
maybe the more atonal, the more dissonant, the more droney your stuff is, kind of the more on the pedestal it is, or the more dire and serious it is. Um, I guess that's not always the case, but I think it's fair to say that there's a general sense of where that music lies on the seriousness scale. Sure, yeah. And, wh- and where... Uh, and uh, so I, I guess I, I realized that I had bought into that a little bit when I started just doing, you know, completely balls out cute, just like like tinkling the keys and stuff and doing a bunch of like white jazz stuff for this show. Uh, it made me realize that I had kind of desperately wanted to get that out but was maybe repressing it a tiny bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it kind of felt liberating a little to be able to do all this music and <laughs> yeah it's just it's i think it will probably be one of the best jobs i will ever have in my life so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i gotta try to enjoy it while i can right well i'm gonna jump into here a few tracks from the new record mutant glamour starting with one called manor cream and then we're gonna also play a few things from that uh, tv show called layla so here it is giant claw
All right, well, we played a, a new track in that set from Henry Dawson, uh, which, of course, is Seth, who you, who you do the label with. Um, w- was that track something that's eventually going to come out on Orange Milk then? I, th- I think that track, um, it's a newer one. I think that one is uh, for a Tranquility Tapes release. He's got Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Seth has, he's got quite a few things coming up. Um, and he's been <laughs> really plugging away. Like every day I'll get like an instant message from him or something. It's like, check this out. And some crazy new <laughs> track. Mm-hmm that he's been working on. So, uh, yeah, he's got quite a few things uh, to look forward to uh, this this year and probably next year, too. Sure. You guys, uh, together, you put out a tape under, uh, or as Cream Juice. And I I was wondering, is that something that you guys are planning to continue to collaborate on? Or is is this sort of a long-distance collaboration? Or do you just do it whenever you're together in a room? No, yeah, we... uh, yeah, it's definitely something we do when we're together. Um, and we do. We have a new record that we're working on right now, actually. Um, yeah, he he came to Columbus, uh, I think, a month or two ago. And we just recorded, like, you know, six hours of stuff. Um, trying, like, trying a bunch of new ideas. There's some tracks where I was playing... They're trying to play some kind of free jazz drum, drum craziness, uh, while he was doing some synth noise, and uh, there's a lot of dancey uh, drum beat stuff on it. So we were definitely trying to uh, break out of our comfort zone a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, he's he's coming back, I think, the next few days to try to mix this thing. <laughs> try to wade through these hours of probably lots of bullshit to find. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, because you guys, I mean, it's pretty much, it's typically all improvised, right? I mean, you just kind of, are you playing live within a room? Is that how you you guys record? Yeah, it is. It is actually. We we always talk beforehand, like, oh, we're going to plan this out. We're going to compose this time. Mm -hmm. And then we get together and it's like, oh, fuck it. Like, let's just just play. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Which has, like, got, which has got to be, in some sense, both of you being solo artists and sort of really hunkering down and, and multi-tracking is probably sort of refreshing for both of you, I'm guessing. It, it is, totally. Um, playing with someone else is... If it was up to me, I would, that would be my normal uh, mode of operation in music. Um, I, I feel, particularly in a live setting... Uh, Going by yourself is kind of lonely, mm-hmm. anxiety-ridden experience for me, at least. But uh, me and Seth went on a little tour as Cream Juice, actually, and uh, it just felt really good to kind of rely on someone else and to have like a bit of a fuller sound with a less pressure. So uh, that's something that we're definitely going to pursue and keep doing. Cool. Yeah. Well. We're going to kind of close out here with some more new material that you have even beyond uh, this this next round of tapes here in the next week or so. But you've provided several checks for some upcoming things here. And I guess want just kind of share with us a few of the things that you have coming out. 
and then maybe when you anticipate this next round of tapes to come out and i guess i can mention this one here that i'm going to start off with is something from don slepian which is more of a an archival release that you're doing right yeah so yeah we have quite a packed release schedule um uh, this uh, Don Slepian, I'm not sure when that that's going to come out. He's still he's still I think tweaking a few things, or like he might be overdubbing on some of his old tracks. But uh, he is kind of an old synth guy. Uh, I think he started in the '70s actually, and he actually you can go to his SoundCloud. He has a lot of a lot of stuff up. Uh, his early experiments are very kind of bizarre. Uh, synth, uh, synth drone. Some of it is. Some of it has like piano, and I don't know. It's it's a weird mix of stuff. And clearly, he's figuring out and exploring these instruments for the first time. You know, in I think the mid seventies. Uh, so it's an interesting look back. And uh, I know he later went on in the eighties and nineties, I think, to do a few uh, new age albums. Mm. Which, which it seems like every synth player from the '70s or '80s just was like, "Fuck it, I'm just going to do new age now." <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, which is kind of a funny trend, but yeah. Um, but yeah, we're we're definitely more interested in his early stuff, which I think um, there's been a there's been a lot of this kind of thing being reissued lately. I've noticed. Um, kind of a whole generation of uh, these early uh, electronic synth explorers kind of that just, you know, never got their due. Right, right. I feel like that period of time and music maybe uh, kind of washed by a little bit too quickly or maybe just it wasn't the right time culturally. I don't know what, but now I think a lot of it is being reexamined and... Uh, there's a lot of kind of relevant stuff to to what we have going now, and uh, but yeah, I'm pretty excited for that Don Slepian one. And then um, yeah, and then the next two that you said to me were were um, Food Man and then the Piper Sprayer in the next round of cassettes. Right. right? Yeah. Those those will be coming up uh, right after the the current batch we've got out now. Um, Food Man, <laughs> he is a footwork guy from japan oh, okay. um and yeah i just heard i just messaged him randomly on soundcloud i was like hey do a release with us and he did and he sent us a whole release and it was nothing like footwork at all it was just kind of this crazy collage uh weirdness with some elements of i guess hip-hop or footwork in there but uh, it was definitely a, a pleasant surprise it's very very cool record mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of chopped up sampling so and then uh let's see the piper spray one is he's from russia and that's a, uh, this is the second release you're doing with him right? yeah this will be his second release he he sent us a demo last year it was really great um and we tried you know we we listen to all demos we get unfortunately now we're like two back up really take on any new projects, but um, we definitely release, uh, if the demo's good, like, we'll put it out, and he was one of those, that, and he still, his tape sold really well, too, so um, we figured, 
yeah, let's give him a do the second one. And this one is it's almost more like a bit more abstract, I guess, and more hazy. Like it's almost like my bloody Valentine uh, without drums. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of hard to explain, but uh, yeah, that should be good too. Well, yeah, what's um. Well, let's get into some of this. Uh, we're going to start th- things off here with uh, Don Slepian. This track is called Tumble Stream.
close things out here with something from uh, Sean McCann's Open Resolve LP that Orange Milk uh, reissued last year. 
want to say thanks again to Keith Rankin for joining us on this week's show and chatting with us and for providing a bunch of music for us to play. Please check out all the links on the blog uh, to find out more about Orange Milk, Giant Claw, Henry Dawson, and to track down some of those recordings. And feel free to email me any questions at hotmail.com. Otherwise, check back next week, or a couple weeks actually. Uh, we have a couple more in-studio guests uh, coming up and in the works, so definitely check back. Thanks for listening.